Hello and welcome to this episode of Faith in Politics. For the final time, your hosts are Bethan and Will, because next month you're going to have some new hosts, Cameron and Rosella, who are going to be taking over the podcast from us, and we really, really look forward to listening to what they're going to do. But for the next half an hour, you're stuck with us. We have a busy episode again for this month. We've got an interview with Susan Henry Crow, who's the head of the General Board of Church and Society at the United Methodist Church. And then I'm going to be reflecting on my time in Japan. I've just come back from a conference about nuclear weapons and and had a really interesting time met with people who um, survived the atomic bomb and uh, got to talk with young activists as well. So it was a really interesting time and, and a good chance to think about how our faith affects the way we campaign for peace and and get involved in issues around nuclear disarmament too. So with that, let's have a listen to Will's Monthly Musing. Recently, I had the enormous privilege of attending a conference with 15 young people from all over the world in Hiroshima, a city devastated by the atomic bomb 74 years ago. We were there to exchange campaigning ideas with other young activists. We were there to learn about the terrible humanitarian threat nuclear weapons still pose today. But most importantly, we were there to listen, to meet with survivors, to hear the stories of people for whom August the 6th, 1945 is not just an historical event, but a reality that continues to shape their lives. Lee Jong-kun was a teenager the day his city was destroyed. Now 91, he greeted us with the most infectious smile. And then he took us back to that fateful day, arguing with his mother in the morning, passing the hypercenter just 10 minutes before the bomb was dropped, suffering severe burns and having black oil rubbed into his wounds. He depicted a scene of devastation that was utterly harrowing. But he became most emotional when talking about his experiences as a person of Korean descent growing up in Japan. He recalled the bullying he faced from classmates and teachers. He recalled the discrimination he experienced applying for work. Walking home from school one day, he was urinated on by a man passing by. All of this left me thinking about the nature of the peace we seek. The reimagining of an international order maintained for too long by mutual vulnerability, by fear, by broken relationships. Lasting peace is within our grasp if only we're willing to be gracious, to cooperate, to remember the inherent dignity of every single person. As Christians, we have a particular calling to strive for peace and a particular role to play, because we know something of the great joy of being at peace with God, and how we long to see the peace of the kingdom of God reigning right here, right now. But Mr Lee's remarks reminded me that this vision still feels very distant indeed. In a country where people of Korean descent still face barriers today, he said he simply wanted to live his final days in peace. Those sentiments were echoed at the peace ceremony which is held every year to mark the moment when the bomb was dropped. The Prime Minister, the Governor of the region and the Mayor of the city all spoke, but the most moving speeches were delivered by two sixth grade students. They said that sometimes we need to say thank you, to say I'm sorry. Sometimes it takes children to remind us of simple yet profound truths. We know that there's a redemptive quality in the moments when we express gratitude, when we overlook the wrongs committed against us, when we apologise for what we have done or for not acting as we ought to have done. 
that as we do so, we unlock something of the divine in ourselves and in one another. Because when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, we know that this is meant to cover every area of our lives, every square inch of our world. Fundamentally, the behaviour of nation-states with their desire for power, their insecurities, their strategic concerns, that's only a broader reflection of us. States are aggressive because we as people are all too willing to choose hollow power over peace, to see the worst in one another rather than the common humanity that comes from being made in God's image, known and loved more than we can ever begin to grasp. And so the change we seek begins first with us. It begins as we pursue peace, not as an abstract concept, but as a series of active choices in our day-to-day -day lives. It starts with our attitudes and actions towards those who dislike us, ignore us, as well as the people we're often tempted to dislike, tempted to overlook. The pursuit of peace is hard, but we undertake it with great hope, because conflict is not the end of the story. For Jesus did not overcome the world through force, but by walking the way of peace by humbling himself, by emptying himself, by rising again to show us that whatever happens, peace and reconciliation will always have the final word. Up next, we have our interview between Will and Reverend Susan Henry Crow, who is the General Secretary of the United Methodist Church in America. It's a real pleasure at Methodist Conference to be joined by Reverend Susan Henry Crow. Susan is the General Secretary of the General Board of Church and Society at the United Methodist Church and we're having a conversation about pursuing justice in, in divided times and I can't think of many better times to have that conversation than in this moment. And I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about what you do at the United Methodist Church, what some of the issues are that, that you engage with. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm glad I can be here. Um, the Board of Church and Society has been located on Capitol Hill uh, for a hundred years and our work on justice um, has evolved over the century. Uh, we started doing work on uh, temperance and public morals in the early part of the 20th century. We've always had a strong position against war, uh, really from the time of World War One until now. And the General Conference passes um, resolutions and we have social principles that guide our work. So we have statements right now on about 35 topics. And so we advocate on those topics um, around economic justice or climate or health. Um, immigration, migration, um, in the U.S. case, gun violence, free and fair elections, and because the United Methodist Church is a global church, we work um, partly in the U.S. and also partly in other countries and cultures around the world. Many of those issues are, are not new, but, but perhaps the political intensity around them has become greater in recent years and I wonder how you found engaging in those issues how, how hard has it been not to become engaged in what often feel like partisan battles at the moment particularly in the United States. It's interesting that in the early part of the 20th century 
And then again, um, after World War II, the church was pretty divided on certain issues. Um, certainly um, not so much World War II, but the Vietnam War, War the church was deeply divided on it. Um, in recent years, there has been more division both in the church and in the country in politics. The Pew Research found that Methodist um, in the U.S., 40% voted for Trump, 40% voted for Clinton, and 20% didn't vote. Mm. Uh, that's about the same percentage as in the Roman Catholic Church in the U.S., uh, which signifies a great divide in the country, uh, both politically and, of course, that's reflected in the church. There are also um, generational divides, too, on some issues. Um, young people are very committed to climate justice, and older people as well, but we struggle with divides of different kinds uh, in the church and in the U.S. And those divides within the church especially, I guess, make it hard when you're thinking about what it means to pursue justice for us as Christians. I suppose even to decide what justice looks like sometimes. And we work hard on that, always trying to um, base our work in sort of the theology of the church and the biblical mandates of sorting out what is justice. And sometimes it can be difficult, like on a topic like education, where the church has been long committed to public education. But there's really nothing in scripture about that. And so you're deducing and pulling things out that you believe to be faithful. And they sometimes can look partisan when in fact they really aren't, but sometimes they come across as partisan. It seemed based on polling research for the 2016 election that the biggest indicator as to why someone would vote for Donald Trump was about cultural anxieties, the fear that something in their country was changing in a way that they didn't necessarily like, rather than rather than Donald Trump's economic populist message resonating. I wonder to what extent the church has seen that anxiety where, where it is in its communities. Immigration is one of the good examples of that. The United Methodist Church in the U.S. is 92% Anglo, and yet most of our work deals works across economic and racial and ethnic lines. And so we're engaging with people that aren't always reflected in the membership of the church. The country is changing a lot, and it's changed throughout history. I mean, certainly at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, we had a lot of immigrants. And now I think, as you sort of point to, that with immigration and other issues, that it does make people fearful. And people that they don't know, or perhaps they're losing their jobs for different reasons, and then they begin to project their anxiety onto populations of people. So that I think, in part, the Trump election reflected anxiety, as you say, in the culture and they don't know how to deal with it. And sometimes the church is not helped. Sometimes the church has been helpful and remarkably helpful. And at times the church has not spoken very clearly and done the educational work. 
and the engagement work that really helps people think and change. I suppose immigration is one of the areas where we've seen the church stepping out and making quite public pronouncements about actions that this administration has taken. How do you go about deciding where it's appropriate for the church to speak and that I guess includes bringing members of the church along with you? Our first criteria for saying something is, is it in the social principles or through actions of the General Conference? The second criteria is how current it is and the impact that it's having. So a year ago, when the separation of families in the border became a very public issue, which was not when it happened. It had happened years before, but it became much more public in May and June of last year. We really needed to give guidance to the church and to speak somewhat prophetically on behalf of our own commitment to justice. And so that was one of the times that it was very clear that we needed a strong and unequivocal statement on um, how wrong it is to separate children from their parents. That, of course, has continued throughout the year, and we now have another crisis. And when I or others in the church make statements, they are not always well-received. Uh, there certainly is appreciation from many parts of the church, but there also is a lot of criticism and critique. Um, so the other, another criteria is if it is an issue that affects the whole country um, rather than states, we're more apt to speak to it. Right now, um, we're in the situation on health and reproductive care, which has implications for states and also national implications. So it's one of the issues that we're watching and we'll say something about it nationally, but we won't get into the issues um, that the states are addressing. So trying to distinguish ourselves uh, in terms of what our responsibility is and where churches at the local level, meaning the state level, have a responsibility to say something. There's a sense in which you're in Washington DC and, and you have a privileged position within a city of power in the United States, but the United States is such a big country that actually <laughs> there's a, an extent to which Washington DC can't change everything and fix everything and, and for many people is actually seen as part of the problem rather than the solution. Exactly. So can you speak into that a little bit and about how you can both be present in Washington and, and part of a national conversation but also have a real impact in communities across the country too? Being in Washington is really important and it's important for our history uh, to help the church have a national and sometimes international presence on certain issues and also falls victim to being um, mistrusted because it is in Washington and influenced by what's happening in politics. One of the things that we do um, is have a lot of conversation and sit at tables with our ecumenical and interfaith partners on various issues, particularly on immigration, on health, um, economic justice, climate justice, civil and human rights. So we're not just speaking, many times we're not just speaking ourselves, but we're speaking as faith communities. That's very important 
for to have a Methodist voice in some topics where our voice alone would not be as strong as it is with 30 other faith communities. And we could not do that nearly as well or as easily if we were not in Washington. The downside of being in Washington is that people say, well, inside the Beltway, people don't listen. That's not been my experience. Inside the Beltway, certainly in the church, people have paid attention. And we have advocacy and organizing in church relationships with church leaders all across the U.S. And we pay close attention to what's happening uh, and in the needs of those areas. One of the things, we're working in Texas right now on a program called Advocates for Justice and bringing conferences, Texas is a really big state, and bringing uh, two of the conferences together to see what their issues are that have um, national implications so that we can help them begin to advocate for themselves in Washington on some of the issues that they are facing. So that's kind of an example of how we interface with annual conferences which are in states. We've talked a bit about the church's responsibility to pursue justice and and that in order to do that we need to root that in our theology. I wonder how the church today can pursue truth too and those truth and justice are not separate but we're living in a time where our political leaders often don't speak the truth and and who Mm -hmm. seem to ignore facts and and seek to exacerbate divisions rather than um, rather than seek to heal them and I wonder how you feel as Christians in congregations across the country but also as the church we can think about countering that that's a very difficult pursuit we do find that the truth is pretty cheap and that a lot of people claim it and a lot of people are not very well versed or very well read on the depth of an issue and have lots of opinions. Sometimes people don't want to hear the facts. Uh, They have their feelings and their opinions and their beliefs, which really does reinforce fake news. And so the interplay between people's feelings about things and hearing the things that they want to hear. And that's true for any of us. I mean, I am more apt to listen to the news that I want to hear rather than the news that somebody that I don't want to hear. So I want to be fair and balanced on that. But sometimes the facts um, and the experiences just don't bear out what is reported or what is discussed. I think finding truth, I worked in higher education a long time, and I think finding truth is a very noble and important journey, and it's not simple. And our culture is one that really lives in six second to 12 second um, just bites. And it's pretty hard to get into an issue in six or 12 seconds. So helping the church be more discerning about what is truth and how to talk about it and think about it, I think is part of our responsibility. You mentioned that we get news often in 
bite-sized chunks that don't give us a full picture and also that because of social media and the people we surround ourselves we can often get the news that we want to the picture that you paint of the church there in terms of how people voted in 2016 suggests that there is a diversity of opinion and an ideological diversity too but I guess not necessarily in every congregation but I wonder what it's been like in your congregations over the last two and a half years if that's not too broad a question how do conversations play out where there is real division and, and mm-hmm. re- really different ideas of what kind of justice we should be pursuing. I was a pastor for a long time in South Carolina, which is not one of the most politically progressive states. It is also a very uh, rich state in its racial and ethnic diversity. And I served in communities that would now be labeled as conservative. And the communities in which I served, people had different opinions. And they learned to live, I mean, they had lived together all of their lives for the most part. Some were urban communities, some were rural communities. But when you grow up together and you live together, you come to care for one another. And especially in times of need or in times of crisis. And so they, In those days, certainly, people were somewhat accepting of each other, even though they didn't share the same views. And as a young pastor who was a woman in a world in which there had been no women clergy, if I talked about economic justice or the right of workers to collectively bargain, uh, the congregation didn't agree with that. But some people in the congregation would agree with it. And they would tend to come to me privately and say, thank you for saying that. It's something I feel like I can't talk about. Um, but it, in your saying that, in my saying that, they felt like that they had a little window to talk about what their needs were at work, for example. I think today, and that was a long time ago when I served as a pastor, I think today it is harder for congregations in some cases, but not most cases, I think, to sort of bridge the divides. I think both politics in the country, politics in the church have deepened the divide rather than help bridge it. But living together and caring about life and death and children growing up and parents dying and all of those things bring people together. And in those situations, they can begin to talk about issues that are real life issues. There was, we had a a friend from North Carolina in the past couple of years that was pretty conservative on healthcare and began to realize with a daughter who had some handicapping conditions that she really needed more health care than she was going to get if there was not help from the state. And he took on the health care system, really, and became a real advocate for justice. And he was a very unlikely uh, candidate. And he and his wife walked all the way from North Carolina to Washington and became really very active uh, in advocating as Methodists for health care. So when it touches people's hearts and lives, people really do change what they think about truth and what they think about justice. 
that must be one of the joys of this work, seeing God working his purposes out in surprising ways. It's so surprising. <laughs> I wonder I wonder about where the importance of rooting identity in Christ is, because I think there's something about at the moment we make moral judgments about people based on how they vote, particularly in such divided times. And so where's the importance of where our identity is at the moment? And I think the church is really helpful on that. I mean, when we say the same creeds, we sing the same hymns, we pray some of the same prayers, that it does bring us together. And that is all centered around our belief in Christ and the way that Jesus lived in the world. And that our um, biblical understandings and our historical and theological teachings really do give us an identity that we should not sell short. And and Christian people, I think, do have a way of coming together um, out of our common commitment to Christ in a way that bridges can bridge our differences. Um, and we have to work at it. Where in your work do you see God breaking through? What are some of the exciting changes that you've seen? All the time. Great. (laughs) Um, I have had the good fortune of never knowing what I was going to do first or next. (laughs) And so I started out as a young pastor, and certainly in parish life, there are so many kind of surprises of seeing people change, seeing young people have a new insight, learning something new about scripture, doing mission work together, um, where they're influenced by the places that they go and the people they meet. Um, I worked in a university setting for over 20 years, and of course, that is a very kind of rich and expected place for change to take place. And saw a lot of interfaith work, which was really wonderful to see people from, you know, five and ten uh, faith families come together around all kinds of issues. Working with the Board of Church and Society, uh, I have dozens of examples of people who came as members of the board who didn't believe that gay and lesbian people should be ordained, and after a year or two of being with people who really believed differently about that and they came to know some people who were gay or lesbian or transgendered, they changed their minds and there was um, one man that really sort of did a 180 on uh, his understanding and accepting of LGBTQ people. I've seen people change over reproductive health issues, which is a big issue in the U.S. When people understand about um, the effect of racism uh, in the U.S. and the many ways that it is impacted in prison systems, gun violence, and communities that are most impacted, they really do change their hearts and their minds and commit themselves anew to pursuing justice. So I see it a lot. (laughs) And there's great hope in those turnarounds, isn't there? Because we can undertake this work with a sense of hope because we know that God is working and we know know how this story ends. And I just think that's really exciting. And that's the beauty of Christianity. I mean, is that 
redemption happens all the time. Where do we need to see redemption at the moment? Where's the area where you really feel like you have a heart for seeing change and you'd encourage people in your church and in the Methodist Church here in the UK and in, in all of our partner churches too? Understanding the stories of others is important. Um, when people work in prison systems and see the plight of the system of prisons in the U.S., which is very oppressive and privately owned, so somebody's benefiting. And the more that people see and understand those stories, it really does impact them. I think both in more in the church than in the society, the issues of LGBTQ people um, really story people's stories change people's lives and their thinking so I've seen a lot of change in that area it still seems slow and unjust but you know people are speaking out and being really strong and clear racism is hard in the US and I think the effects of colonialism and slavery have deeply impacted the society and I think the more that people pay attention and learn about the impacts of slavery and racism uh, the more that they have an opportunity to see the world in a different way. And how would you encourage members of our churches to get started if they see an issue that's really bugging at them or they feel a real sense of God's call to, to get in there and make a difference, how would you encourage them to do that? I think looking deeper into their own communities is really important. Um, I think church people can be pretty isolated and insulated and you know the people that they go to church with are not always the people that they meet at the grocery store or at the service station or at Walmart and really interacting more deeply in the community is important. I also think listening to music and paying attention to the arts is really important for church people, and I think they do, but I think learning from culture is really important, and it sort of helps not be as isolated and insulated. So those are two things that I would do. And I think listening to young people is really important. I mean, young people are leaders in the church and they have a different perspective than some people, not all people, but really paying attention to younger people and how life is for them, which is very different. Um, so I think those are three things that I would say that can really make a difference. And we are people that have crossed boundaries a lot. We have cared about systems of poverty and how that those systems can be unjust. So I think articulating our identity as Methodists and feeling proud of that is really important. What an interesting context Susan Henry Crow is working in and thinking about pursuing truth and justice in a country where where truth and justice are so contested that there are such real and profound divisions around politics and around culture. And I think exploring that question of how we disagree with each other in our churches, and I'm particularly struck by 
the electoral breakdown in 2016 of how people voted and, and a real split in that election and, and in, in an election that felt like it was about moral values as much as political values. And Bethan, I wonder what you took away from the interview and thinking more broadly about that question of how we do church together and worship alongside one another on a Sunday and in the whole of our lives when we have such such strong disagreements that feel like they're about the core of who we are as people rather than just what we think about things. Mm. I think what I took away from it was the... This wasn't necessarily touched on, but I, I did think of... When, when you were talking, I did think of this idea that both the election of Trump and the Brexit situation that we're in at the moment has acted as a a catalyst and and been used as a reason for people to be able to voice opinions that maybe they didn't previously feel that there was the space to voice them or they felt that they would be mocked or delegitimized and I've been thinking about this a lot and I find it really interesting because to me it's pretty obvious that views that are maybe uncomfortable for many of us in regarding immigration regarding um justice regarding loads of things have been on people's hearts and been on people's minds for a very very long time but maybe they didn't feel they had the space to say them and then when this space has been created by trump or brexit or in a, in loads of countries all over the world um suddenly people have that space and they're using it and everyone else is really shocked but we have to we can't forget that this is not new these views are not overnight they've they've evolved and they've been there for a really long time in people's hearts and brains and thinking right yeah right when you have a president who fails to denounce white supremacists and calls for a shutdown of muslims entering the country and suggests that political opponents who don't like his vision for the country should go back to where they come from which is of course uh which is of course preposterous and 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 racist Mm -hmm. it certainly gives license to people to air their grievances and to air their and to air their bigotry i think what's interesting about the trump phenomenon and the whole populist phenomenon is that it claims to offer very simple solutions to what are immensely complex problems and i was thinking about the issues that susan listed that the umc is involved with issues like immigration and healthcare these are immensely complex areas of policy and how difficult it must be to initiate a broad-ranging and informed conversation about those topics when the people leading the country aren't able to facilitate that conversation even if they wanted to. Absolutely and I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that this sort of perceived growth in maybe right-wing opinion has come about because people are angry and a lot of it comes down to what we were talking about with with Steve in our last episode is that people are angry and people are lashing out but why let's go upriver and let's look at why they're angry and unfortunately it is the case that when something is wrong in someone's life and when um, when there are societal issues a person will be chosen to be blamed and it's always been the case that it's easy to blame the immigrants and it's easy to blame the person who are the people who are different so for me I think a lot of having this conversation is firstly trying to show that those scapegoats are not healthy and they're not correct and that it's wrong to to back up your bigotry with racism at the same time as looking at okay so why has this come about why are people angry and why are people um, discontented with the system 
and, and what is the solution and let's face it there are millions of people in the united states who feel like their lives aren't getting any better and that's regardless of whether it's a democrat in the white house or a republican in the white house and so it's not an excuse for voting for donald trump but it's certainly an explanation they've seen administrations of different parties running the country and haven't seen their lives improve materially and so you think when somebody like donald trump comes along who claims to offer solutions to these problems what have you got to lose in voting for him in order to understand grievance and anger not just with trump but also with brexit and why people are becoming more and more angry with the eu we have to look at the root cause of where this anger is coming from and i think the a lot of the stuff of what Susan was saying about what churches can do to get engaged is really important and that's learning from the culture that you're inside of um, churches are really good at being very inward looking and very insular and there's a real power in looking to culture looking to young people, looking to the arts which is something I thought was so fascinating and I agree with wholeheartedly in that if you want to learn about how a culture feels and how Uh, what a society is angry with look at its art look at the arts look at the graffiti around your city look at what's going on in your galleries look at what the young student films are about because it's those people who are in there and are struggling and are trying to show a grievance in a way that is a is hopefully a positive output and churches are places where because we unite around the gospel and we have an understanding of a shared faith and a a shared creator and a shared saviour that minds can be changed around issues and we can um, encourage one another to to uh, see other perspectives and to um, explore issues and grow in faith and so I was really struck by the story Susan told about the member of her congregation from North Carolina and the way that his daughter's experience of requiring health care that in conversations with the community in in his own experience he realized the importance of a healthcare system that meets people's needs rather than is about costs and that's to simplify the issue slightly but it's but it's an important point and the fact that he then became a real advocate for healthcare reform that he was able to walk from North Carolina all the way to DC and to some way take steps towards seeing the change that he wanted to bring about I actually found that story quite difficult to listen to because I find it I understand that his perspective changed when his daughter became ill and and it's impressive what he did but I find it I find that a difficult thing because for me what churches should be doing is saying that this is wrong regardless of the fact that it's happening to someone you know that that even if it's happening to your to someone in a distant land or someone who lives in a different city it doesn't have to happen to your daughter for it to matter and that is really difficult because obviously we we all have different reactions and that we are we are catalyzed and we are inspired by things that happen close to us for me there needs to be some bravery and there needs to be some area of saying we don't just care about this because it's happening to us or we don't just care about this because it's in the media but we care and we're acting because it's a matter of justice and a matter of showing love to our neighbor regardless of that neighbor is next door or 100 miles away So to finish, we are going to end with a final book recommendation from Will and I. So, Will, what have you been reading? I'm reading a book called To Kill the Truth by Sam Bourne, and it's about the idea of slavery being on trial and about a court case where a historian is trying to prove that slavery never took place. And I think it's a particularly important uh, book to be reading at the moment as we think about the... as we think about 
truths being contested and uh, in an era of fake news and um, misinformation around a whole host of issues. I think just thinking about how easy it would be to take an historical fact and begin to pick it apart. It's a scary thing, but it's it's certainly a phenomenon that is more believable now than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. How about you, Bethan? So this month I've been getting more and more into podcasts, but I'll come back to that in a moment. But as for books, I've been reading a Renaissance book by an author whose name I'm about to butcher because it's French, but it's Michael de Montaigne. And it is a reflection from Montaigne about his belief that we should embrace solitude and embrace the importance of knowing ourselves and, and what that can give to the interactions you have with other people and the reliance you have with other people. And as a Christian, it's a really interesting thing to read because he is sort of suggesting that we don't necessarily live in solitude but be comfortable with being alone and as someone who um, whose faith is about community and about living as a as an intentional community with the people around you and the church um, it's just a really interesting thing to read um, especially considering that he wrote it in the 1500s where the church was a huge part of life and I, I've just found it so interesting to read um, I've also, just to talk podcasts for a moment, um, I have a podcast recommendation for you, uh, a podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. John Green is an author. Um, his most famous book is The Fault in Our Stars, which um, many of you might have read. Um, his podcast is absolutely brilliant and it sounds ridiculous to when I, when I explain it. It is, he reviews different things of the human-centred planet. So every episode, he reviews two things on a five-star scale, so one star to five star. Um, so in one episode, he reviewed um, meningitis and sycamore trees. Firstly, he reviews meningitis, and then he reviews it with one star to five stars, and then he goes on to sycamore trees. And I cannot do it justice, but he writes and reads beautifully, and he has these amazing reflections on these obscure parts of our world and the obscure parts of what humans have done to our world. Um, and I can just highly recommend it. Well, we've reached the end of our final podcast. It's been a real pleasure for both of us to spend the last year with you and talking to people about how their faith impacts their politics and everything they do in their professional lives and in their worshipping lives. We really encourage you to tune in next month when Rosella and Cameron take over the podcast. They have got some fascinating people lined up to do the interview and we really hope you enjoy. So with that, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. goodbye.